0: We go right and quickly to work. My two guests in studio, we are of course discussing last night's debate, are Richard Baer and Ed Lasky, both of a great resource on the internet, The American Thinker. And with us on the phone uh, is Larry Sabato, well known to anybody who follows American politics. He is the editor of and the founder of Sabato's Crystal Ball, published from the Virginia Center for Politics at the University of of the same name. Larry, uh, thank you very much for joining us. And I know that your schedule is in inevitably very tight today, but you're there at the moment, are you not?
1: I am indeed, uh, Bill. Uh, nice to speak with you again. It's my
0: great pleasure. Um, and let's go quickly and directly to it. What did you make of that mess last
1: night? Well, it's no way to conduct a debate, that's for sure. And uh, I think we, we all learned from it, uh, and certainly, uh, the sponsors of upcoming debates learned from it. But, uh, Despite uh, the actions of the, of the questioners and the moderators, I, I thought it was quite revealing. Uh, certainly, I agree with the conventional wisdom that Marco Rubio and, and Ted Cruz did well. I agree that, that Jeff Bush <laughs> did not, but I thought that most of the candidates had some moments to shine and did. Uh, It's not that that debate is going to elect Chris Christie. He's not going to be the Republican nominee, but he did well in the debate. Lindsey Graham did well in the undercard. Um, So I think it's important to acknowledge that uh, more than a few candidates can do well in a debate. Uh,
0: Well, under those circumstances, it became essentially a fight between the candidates on the one hand and the people from from a sea and from CNBC, on the other hand, uh, it it's was a very
2: strange confrontation.
1: Yes, much too confrontational. It led to chaos. I agree. Part of it is that you have 10 candidates on the stage, and it's a tug of war. They're pushing and pulling and, and uh, trying to get their arguments uh, put front and center. Uh, and I actually don't agree with the way the debates are being run. But uh, the, the moderators did nothing to help the situation. Oh, and I think they, they made...
0: I think they made fools of themselves to some degree.
1: Well, they increased the le- level of chaos, that's for sure.
0: Yes. Uh, two guests in studio, both old friends, and both uh, at uh, The American Thinker, uh, that great conservative in, uh, site on uh, the Internet. They are Ed Lasky, the news editor, and Richard Baer, who's the chief political correspondent. Let me bring them in, Richard.
3: Yeah, uh, I tend to agree with Larry that it was a a very unusual debate, Uh, but the Republicans, I think, uh, in 2012, Newt Gingrich uh, scored well when he went after the media, and that's a very popular stance when you have a conservative audience, Uh, and the moderators really just served up red meat yesterday. I thought when Cruz sort of went through the summary of the first five questions, which he did very well, uh, they were pretty obnoxious. I mean, they're asking the black candidate in the race basically whether he can do math, Uh, They're calling uh, Trump a clown show. Uh, This is after they've probably interviewed him 30 times on CNBC quite seriously about his businesses over the years. So uh, it it looked to me like they were doing a good job to impress the people they'll be at the cocktail parties with Friday night or back in their offices at the New York Times or with their fellow uh, liberal professional uh, journalists uh, when they get off work. But uh, it it sort of fed every stereotype about uh, how the media views the Republican Party Uh, And they didn't help themselves. I think future moderators are going to have to think a little more thoroughly about how they can ask solid questions, provocative questions, without just being obnoxious and making themselves a story.
0: How, in fact, Larry, did this whole tradition of the candidates' debate uh, on television with a panel of interviewers, how did that all get started and when?
1: Well, the first television debates, of course, were in general election of 1960, the Kennedy-Nixon ones. But we actually did a little study at the Center for Politics. They they go back on radio to the 1940s. Uh, I would say that the, the modern system really began in the 1980s. Uh, you didn't have uh, CNN until 1980. You didn't have Fox until 1996. And it tends to be the cable channels who are willing to spend you know, one, two, three, even as many as five hours of prime time airing these debates, though they've turned lucrative. I mean, look at the audiences. I don't know what the audience was for last night. I don't think it was as high as the 23 to 24 million that Fox and CNN got in the first two debates, but probably it was over 10 million at a minimum, probably more than that and they were able to charge $250,000 for 30 seconds. (laughs) uh, CNBC hasn't been able to charge that kind of money in years, if ever.
4: Here is uh, Ed Leslie. Well, I think uh, Ted Cruz said it the best when he called it a cage fight, and that's what people are tuning in for, apparently, or many people are, and the moderators fed that. You've got a celebrity aspect as well because of Donald Trump, who is the Don Rickles of American politics, and people are looking for that sort of uh, entertainment, if you want to call that um, food fight, uh, what it was. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of the questions were not substantive. You know, I would hope that more people would be tuning in for that, but apparently the ratings are indicating otherwise.
0: Hmm. Did anybody really stand out in terms of demonstrating significant? potential presidential competence. Your view on that, Larry?
1: <laughs> I don't think they were given enough time mm-hmm. uh, to present full views on anything. That's a defect That's on
0: in this format, uh, whoever's running it,
1: actually. Yes. I. Well, I think they did a particularly bad job, but Uh, I don't like the format. I've proposed many, many times, and can't seem to get it adopted, that when you have a large field like this, you divide the prime time into say three-hour segments, and you have three or four candidates per hour selected by lottery right prior to the event, so the candidates and their consultants and staffs won't know exactly who will be sitting at a table, and you don't have the lecterns. You have a table uh, everybody sitting there, they're having a discussion with one moderator who's more of a traffic cop than someone who's inserting his or her own views.
0: That's a very nice model. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: well, dream on. It'll be adopted on the 12th of never.
0: It <laughs> <laughs> should be adopted uh, even before we finish this season. Um, Rubio seems to have, uh, is now viewed today at least, as having significantly increased his fortunes last night.
2: Yes,
1: it's still early. (laughs) This is the third debate, and it's October. There's another debate coming uh, November the 10th, and uh, there'll be one a month essentially for the Republicans all the way through the primary process. So we don't want to exaggerate the effect of any single debate, but yes, I think Marco Rubio helped himself. I also think Ted Cruz helped himself. Mm -hmm. I don't think Trump and, and Carson increased their support. I don't think they did anything particular that's going to decrease it. Uh, but uh, every time we have a debate like this, there are some effects that no one sees in advance. And that will probably be the case as we see a bunch of polls rolling out from this encounter.
0: I know you've got a bunch of broadcasting dates <clears throat> lined up, and I deeply appreciate your joining us at the beginning of this. Last question. Go to the other side of the street. What's happening
1: with Mrs. Clinton? <laughs> well, barring an indictment, she's the nominee. Well, oh, that's uh, clear. It's that simple. Bernie Sanders is not going to be a real threat. Of course not. But isn't Certainly an, not Martin O'Malley.
0: Is an indictment conceivable?
1: Well, sure. The FBI is investigating. I don't think it's likely, but, but I have no idea what's going on. The indictment on
0: has to be brought by the Attorney General of the United States.
1: That makes it even less likely. <laughs> That's, that is the point.
0: Yeah. Uh, Larry, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, if all too brief a one. And I much appreciate your joining us at the beginning of the program.
1: Wonderful to speak with you again, Bill. have a wonderful day. You too.
0: Thank you. Uh, Well, there we have it. What about Mrs. Clinton? We've kind of forgotten her in the midst of this uh, tragic comedy of last night. Yeah, the the
3: interesting thing is whichever party is on display, whether it's hearings or a debate, gets attention. And when they get attention, it seems to sort of lift the spirits of their partisans. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't think Ms. Clinton did that wonderfully during the hearing. And I thought a couple of the questions, particularly about how blatantly she lied to the families of the victims of Benghazi, is the kind of thing that'll make for a very effective 30-second or one-minute ad come the campaign next year. Uh, and the debate there was, you know, f- she was there with four people, three of whom were polling about, you know, 1%, and one of them who's getting all the socialists left in Vermont and northern New England. So. Uh, she doesn't really have a challenge, and I think that is going to harm her going forward. When you become inevitable, fewer people will watch the debate, fewer people will be as concerned with what you say, whereas there's still competition on the Republican side, and that, I think, feeds interest. And because of the look what Ed said, unusual people participating on the Republican side this year is drawing people to political debates who don't normally uh, watch them.
0: I had a psychologist reaction, inevitably watching it and wondering uh, what she was feeling and how comfortable she was, I was a little bit surprised that she seemed to me to be uh, quite with it and in control and uh, at ease, working well, not conflicted, not faking too much, uh, but uh, 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 smoothly functioning. Quite a contrast between every one of her public appearances where I see her just on television giving a speech, whether I watch the whole speech or more much more likely, just see a cut, where one way or another, and it isn't just from putting on a Southern accent, one way or another, she seems fake and false.
4: Well, you know, I think part of the problem with the Benghazi hearings is uh, the, many Republicans and activist groups that surround uh, various politicians overpromised and underdelivered. delivered I thought we, we were thinking there was going to be some sort of uh, soundbite, as has been the past with Hillary Clinton, is what difference does it make at this point? Uh, there was not a soundbite that could be captured and recycled in campaign. So, you know, she did well. Um, of course, there was uh, the, the fact that came to light that she knew that the terror, that the attack was actually a terrorist attack, and that she told uh, some people, including her daughter and, and the leader of Libya, and, um, that it was a terror attack. And, you know, that, as Richard pointed out, will be useful in the campaign. But she On the surface, she did well, and a lot of, unfortunately, people are paying attention to style rather than substance all too often these days.
0: What are we learning as we go through this political season? What are we learning about demographic change in the American electorate and the political change generated by the demographic change?
5: Yeah,
3: demographic changes are are favoring the Democrats. Uh, The percentage of white voters who tend to favor Republicans by about three to two— uh, shrinks by about 2% every four years. Uh, one of the reasons the Republicans do so much better in off-year elections is that the white percentage of the vote is 6 or 7% higher in off-years because you have much lower turnout among African Americans and Hispanics. So all things being equal, it becomes harder for Republicans to win each year. However, uh, you're coming off two elections which were highly unusual in that black turnout because of Obama's candidacy and and, and the uniqueness of his candidacy— was a higher percentage of registered voters than white voter participation in both 2008 and 2012. That's unlikely, I think, to reoccur in 2016. I don't think the participation rate will be as high, despite Bill Clinton advertising himself as the first black president and trying the transference to his wife. It's not the same thing as Barack Obama running. The second is, I don't think the percentage that Republicans draw among black voters, which was only 3% in 2008, 6% 6% in 2012. I think they'll do much better than that. Uh, historically, they got 10 or 11%. If black turnout's down a couple percent, the Republican percentage doubles 11, 12%. And just in case Carson were on the ticket, I think the, the ceiling is potentially a lot higher. Uh, that makes more than makes up for the demographic shift towards the reduced white percentage. So I think uh, if the Republicans can manage somehow to have candidates who are appealing to younger voters, and they may have a younger candidate this year by 25 years compared to the Democrat. First time that's happened in a long time. You're thinking of Rubio. Rubio or Cruz. They're both in their mid-40s. Hillary yeah. will be about 70. Usually, it's the Republicans putting in the guy who lost twice mm-hmm. before, and uh, this could be a, a sort of a changed environment in terms
4: of who it looks like they're the future and who looks like they're the past. And, and needless to say as well, both Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio are Hispanic. I mean, they're Cuban, and they're, I know there's a distinction among non-Cuban Hispanics between Cubans and uh, other Latinos, but I do think that's a factor. I think that's why the Democrats, one of the reasons the Democrats have always been very fearful of Marco Rubio in particular, because of that demographic appeal as well as, as his youth. And I think last night he really showed um, some toughness which sort of belied some, some concerns about his youth, that he was just, you know, he's so young-looking, he's 44, he's younger-looking than 44, he's a lucky guy, um, but, you know, I think people might have perceived him as being too soft after last night. I don't think that's the case. Listen to him, here he goes.
5: Back in 2004, one of my predecessors to the Senate by the name of Bob Graham, a Democrat, ran for president, missing over 30% of his votes. I don't recall them calling for his resignation. Is that the standard? Later that year, in 2004, John Kerry ran for president, missing close to 60 to 70 percent of his votes. I don't recall the Sun. In fact, the Sun Sentinel endorsed him. In 2008, Barack Obama missed 60 or 70 percent of his votes, and the same newspaper endorsed him again. So this is another example of the double standard that exists in this country <laughs> between the mainstream media and the conservative media.
0: The attack was initiated on the- on those grounds by a member of the. Uh, interview panel, but then it was reinforced by by Governor Bush.
3: Yeah. The interesting thing about that is I'd make a case that if you're going to be away from your job, there is more damage potentially done to the people who who elected you if you were a governor than a senator. If you're a senator, you're one of a hundred. If you're the governor, you're the chief executive officer of the state. And I think when this sort of line of questioning was going on, There was some nervousness among uh, John Kasich and Chris Christie, especially Kasich, who is all Ohio all the time in terms of uh, sort of every appeal he makes. Uh, You know, even if you're a Big Ten fan, eventually, you know, you've sort of heard enough about Ohio from John Kasich.
0: Furthermore, still regarding Rubio, here's another attack on him from the panel.
6: You've been a young man in a hurry ever since you won your first election in your 20s. You've had a big accomplishment in the Senate. An immigration bill providing a path to citizenship that conservatives in your party hate and even you don't support anymore. Now you're skipping more votes than any senator to run for president. Why not slow down, get a few more things done first, or at least finish what you start?
5: Yeah, that's an interesting question. That's exactly what the Republican establishment says, too. Why don't you wait in line? Wait for what? This country's running out of time. We can't afford to have another four years like the last eight years. Watching this broadcast tonight are millions of people that are living paycheck to paycheck. They're working as hard as they ever have. Everything costs more, and they haven't had a raise in decades. You have small businesses in America that are struggling. For the first time in 35 years, we have more businesses closing than starting. We have a world that's out of control and has grown dangerous, and a president that is weakening our military and making our foreign policy unstable and unreliable in the eyes of our allies, and our adversaries continue to grow stronger. We have a, they say there's no bipartisanship in Washington. We have a 19-trillion-dollar bipartisan debt, and it continues to grow as we borrow money from, companies that, from countries that do not like us to pay for government we cannot afford. The time to act is now. The time to turn the page is now. If we, if we don't act now, we are going to be the first generation in American history that leaves our children worse off than
6: ourselves. So when the Sun-Sentinel says, Rubio should resign, not rip us off, when they say Floridian sent you to Washington to do a job, when they say you act like you hate your job, do you? Yeah,
5: let me say uh, I, I I read that editorial today with a great amusement. It's actually evidence of the bias that exists in the American media well, today. But do you hate your job? Let me let me answer your question.
0: Hmm. Uh, does he hate his job? Does it matter?
3: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think the uh, the, the issue here is, and and the way Rubio handled was quite skillful. He seems to have learned from Carly Fiorina in a prior debate, Mm -hmm. which is you know where you're going to get hit. You know you're vulnerable. This editorial had just come out, and you got to be ready for it and you got to smash it. And he did. Just like Fiorina knows how to handle the HP issue about whether she was a success or a failure. By the time she gets finished talking about HP, you don't want to talk about HP anymore, whether what she's telling you is true or baloney. It's because she has this, this. collection of stuff she throws out at you and it's it sounds good and she's got it got it put together but that
0: passage about us, all these many different things quite wrong and problematic with the country that was memorized oh no no he of you course. prepare that in advance and then yeah. you plug it in wherever it seems to. yeah and, that, and that's his message is forward
3: looking that essentially he wants to give you know that he is a product of the American dream, his family coming here, people's yeah. lives are better, they escaped Cuba. He wants basic Americans to have a dream and be able to achieve it. That's a very positive vision. If you simply are going to attack the Obama administration for everything bad they've done without offering some alternative vision, it's not going to be enough. It's, the people, if they're going to change because they've had two terms,
4: they don't want a third term of the same thing, have to think they're getting something different. Well, We're... in addition to uh, what Richard just said, I also thought it was tailor-made for the Republican primary voters. I think the question of the commentator did a favor. Jeb Bush walked into a trap because Marco Rubio was able to pivot and turn that into mm-hmm. a, a, an anti-establishment sort of position. The Republican primary voters don't want to hear Kasich talking about how he can work within government. They don't want to hear Jeb Bush working how he can Work the levers of power and government. I thought that was uh, a, a bad, bad for the commentator to bring that up because, in a sense, it played into Marco Rubio's strength. Is he could compare himself, he could picture himself or depict himself as an outsider in a way who wants the dream to come true as quickly as possible for, not just for himself but for all Americans.
0: We return through the fray, and it was a fray last night. Certainly, right after this, in studio with me at the moment are two of the leading people at what I take to be one of the leading internet journals focused more broadly on American politics than just about any other. Uh, The American Thinker is uh, the website. Uh, The two major people from their staff are Richard Baer, chief political correspondent, and Ed Lasky, who is news editor for The American Thinker. How many people contribute to The American Thinker?
3: I, I would guess there are probably a thousand or more now historically. Yes, it's a very long list right there very on the list. Very long list.
0: And they're not paid. No, no one's paid. No yeah. That's why I haven't sent you an article yet.
5: <laughs> well, you'll uh, get
3: you'll get double my rate. <laughs> good, good.
0: You were just talking about your tax rate. That's right. Uh, in Chicago. Correct. For the home that you own. Right. What are we going to do about that once? and possibly future presidential aspirant, the mayor of Chicago.
3: Yeah, I think he's uh, damaged goods right now. Uh, Chicago has damaged him. Well, Chicago's damaged him, yeah, especially the uh, in, the increase in the murder rate, which uh, mm-hmm. was kind of on a going in the right direction for a couple of years. Now the gang warfare is completely out of control, and uh, there are a lot of people going to be very angry with the tax bills they got this year and are going to have in future years, and... Uh, the city could go broke. I mean, with the, mm-hmm. this could be a test case of whether the federal government is willing to rescue a major city in a state in, that has the same politics as the federal government at this point.
0: I love the strange fact. It's funny, but it's also bizarre that uh, you can win multi millions of dollars in uh, the lottery of Chicago, of the state of Illinois, but you can't collect.
4: No, no, it's a it's a blue model. And blue models have last 10, 15 years. Um, what does that mean, a blue model? Well, following liberal policies. you know, A lot of these cities that have followed liberal policies have uh, seen you know, poor economic results. People are moving out of the cities. Yeah. Businesses are moving their operations uh, southwards, if not outsourcing them completely overseas. see it in New York City. We're seeing it in Chicago. Certainly, we're seeing it in Illinois, for that matter, uh, L.A., San Francisco. They're moving to operations to Austin. Some of the high tech companies are going to Austin, which has become the Silicon Valley of the South for sure. Um, And there's been an exodus to Florida. I mean, they've done studies showing rental trucks are filled to the brim moving out of these blue model cities and states and going to red cities and red states.
0: Does the next president have to do something about that?
4: Well, you know, I think we're seeing, uh, I think it was uh, Brandeis maybe who said this, I, Richard or Milt, uh, no, you may correct me uh, about the, la- the states being the laboratories of democracies. And mm-hmm. I think we're seeing some prime examples of uh, different policies being followed by different states and what the results have been. And, and some states are booming and some states are bombing. You now one of the things that's interesting is that
3: some of the states in the coastal areas such as california which clearly has still a lot of entrepreneurial uh, energy uh, and is still minting out tremendous numbers of very successful smart people uh, the only reason there's population growth in that state is because of immigration uh, the net outmigration of those who had already lived in the state is substantial uh, part of it being that people can take whatever they they get from selling their house and get three houses in Colorado or Nevada or Utah or some other state. Um, And that's true on the East Coast states as well. Some of those states would have declining net populations if it weren't for the immigration that's coming in. So uh, that movement of American population, you see it among Hispanics. The fastest growth among Hispanics in the United States right now are the, the rapidly growing states in the South, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia. Those states have had enormous increases in the percentage of the population that's Hispanic who are following opportunity, and that's kind of an American
0: tradition. How can the uh, senior senator from the state of Vermont uh, kind of still push what is truly a socialist program and uh, it's a rob the rich and give to the poor uh, sort of thing, which is just the reductio ad extremis of what the Democrats uh, now want to do. That's why Mrs. Clinton and uh, uh, Senator Sanders really belong on the same platform in a way. How can that be pushed and be uh, successful as an argument and as a vision of the future with so many millions of people so that she may very well become elected as the next president?
4: Well, Democrat demographics are destiny is the cliche, and I think to a great extent that holds true. A lot of uh, people who've come from overseas have the concept of big government is actually good. You know, nationalized health care is good. You know, free education at the college level is a good thing. Um, I think it's very uh, seductive to be offered so many free things um, by politicians. You know, it's it's Mitt Romney had it right. He may have not phrased it the right way. I, I would not you know, think that any politician should phrase it that way. Well, we are
0: realistic at this radio station. We don't offer free things. We tell you about things you can buy. Here are some of them. And we return to the two guests in studio, uh, Richard Baer and Ed Lasky, both of the American Thinker. And with us on the phone now, Jonathan Last from uh, another great conservative publication, namely The Weekly Standard. Um, Jonathan, thank you so much for coming in today. And uh, how does one talk about what happened last night? Uh, I offer this hypothesis. It wasn't politically very important, except maybe for the especially skilled performance uh, of Rubio, because basically it was not a contest between the candidates. It was a contest between the candidates as a team and the interviewers as the opposite team. Your reaction?
2: Uh, I think it was pretty important for Jeb Bush. Um, Ah. Throughout throughout the Jeb Bush campaign, it, it is, I think, telling and instructive that nobody has ever talked about Jeb's ability to win over voters. Uh, it has always talked about his ability to hold on to and impress the establishment and impress especially big-money GOP donors. Uh, I think last night may have been uh, the death knell for his campaign, just in terms of holding on to that much smaller subset. Uh, I suspect that if you are a big-money GOP donor, you looked at Jeb Bush last night and started asking yourself, am I going to throw good money after bad?
0: Yeah, interestingly, uh, my two guests here in studio were discussing that. Uh, during one of the commercial breaks. You gentlemen would have to agree, I guess.
3: Yeah, I, I think that what's interesting is that the so-called establishment candidates, and that would probably include Rubio and Kasich and Christie, among others. Uh, if you add up the total vote of all those, plus Bush, they were about a quarter of uh, the total percentage who were willing to commit to a candidate. Then you take Carson and Trump and Fiorina, they were closer to 60%. So what you have is... The establishment is this behemoth, supposedly, in the eyes of of its enemies, Um, and yet there's a relatively small share of the electorate so far willing to commit to any of their candidates. I mean, there's a betting lines today are showing Marco Rubio almost even odds to win the nomination, which from my perspective would be a bet I'd want to take the other side of. Because he he may be the most likely of the establishment candidates, but when you're running 7 or 8% and you're in 4th or 5th place in every state, that hardly makes you an even-money favorite to be the nominee of your party. And I think Bush, certainly, I would agree with Jonathan, is probably finished at this point. It's hard to see a recovery path. Yeah,
0: how does one account for that, Jonathan? What what do you think might have gone wrong on the inside
7: for Bush?
2: You know what? I, oh gosh, I mean, the, the problem with Bush is that he was— uh, the answer to a question. that I think this is true. Literally, no one in America was asking. I mean, the 24 months leading up to Jeb Bush declaring that he would run for president, I don't think I ever read or saw anything anywhere where somebody posited, "Boy, what America needs in 2016 is Jeb Bush." I mean, you know, he was running for other reasons. Maybe those reasons are perfectly honorable ones that he thought he was the best person for the job. Uh, but he was, I think, a man who was really not at his moment, uh, and also just by his gifts, does not seem to be an especially gifted politician. Uh, You know, it's interesting this comment about the establishment versus the non-establishment. It's weird that we're in such a place where a guy like Ted Cruz is still seen, just in the context of this election, as kind of an establishment candidate, just because he's a professional politician. Uh, And that's what's new. I think the reason the betting markets are so high on Rubio right now, the truth is I'm I would actually take the other side of that. I would take the 50% odds on Rubio being the nominee, frankly, uh, not because I want him to be or anything, but just looking at it. Stu Stevens, who uh, ran the Mitt Romney campaign, but don't hold that against him. He's actually a very smart guy. Uh, his, his verdict on the race, which I think is, is reasonable, is that if Trump is going to be the nominee, uh, or Ben Carson, that would hold as well, I think, for Carson, then it means that everything we think we know about modern politics in America is wrong. Uh, and I think that is true. Now, that doesn't mean that it can't all be wrong. It's entirely possible that everything we know is wrong, that we've actually reached a breaking point and that the Obama years have been uh, sort of so radicalizing that, you know, you know, especially within the Republican electorate, things really are different this time. But I'm always a little bit skeptical of arguments that begin with, this time things were different.
0: Hmm. Well, this time what really made things seem rather different was that a uh, steamroller called Trump kind of rolling across the plane and squashing all sorts of other people and building and maintaining a very high marginals, uh, in just about all the polls, uh, until just before last night when suddenly, uh, and, uh, to me rather surprisingly, uh, we had, um, Dr. Carson inching up or in fact ex- exceeding him in the Iowa polls. Um, what's going on with, with the Donald, as they say, uh, Many people felt this had a snap, the smack of inevitability about it, his campaign. You don't feel that, obviously.
2: Uh, you know, I don't think he's inevitable. Uh, I thought he had a great debate last night. I thought he was one of the three clear winners. Uh, I think that if you watch him over the course of the last three months, he has gotten noticeably better with his stump speeches. I actually think he's getting a little bit better at debates as well. Uh, he was strong last night. He was he kept his aggressiveness, but he was a little bit more focused, a little bit more restrained. But he was able to do that in such a way that worked for him. He didn't really feel handcuffed. Uh, he's he, The truth is, I would say I gave Trump about, uh, I would say, asymptotically approaching 0% odds when he first declared of being the nominee. Mm-hmm. And I would say he's got uh, significantly... Greater than zero odds now. I mean, I'm. I would say I'm still a Trump doubter, but even I would say his odds are probably still one in ten at least, and you know, possibly much more than that, of being the nominee. I think he's getting better, and people people underestimate him at their peril.
0: You're still a Trump doubter. Are you also a Carson doubter?
2: You know, I would say I'm a little bit of a Carson doubter in the sense that I don't believe he can go the distance to win the nomination. I think he's a very good fit for Iowa, and his poll numbers in Iowa don't surprise me at all. I, I. I've even struck over the last four or five years that, in almost invariably, when I talk to Republican audiences, they, all of their own accord, have brought up Ben Carson. So there is people like me who live in Washington and sort of travel in Washington circles uh, are really, I think, have been blind to a large movement around Carson that's been building for a long time now. You know, he's had best-selling books, he's had a movie. Uh, just because he doesn't fit the conventional Washington standards doesn't mean that there isn't real passion for him out there. I think that translates into something. I think, again, Iowa's a very good fit for him. I would be not surprised at all for him to win Iowa and even win it handily. But I don't know that he's particularly well positioned to go the distance and actually be the nominee.
0: I think running for, rather running against, Mrs. Clinton and whoever else she chooses for her vice presidential nominee, of uh, There's a strong and, if not virtually inevitable, likelihood that the Republican nominee, which will not be Carson or Trump, assuming uh, that that is the case, but whoever is the nominee, it's not going to be uh, Jeff uh, Bush. Uh, Otherwise, many members of the field are available. But I should think that for all of them, there'll be a very strong attraction to give the VP nomination either to Fiorina or, in fact, to Carson. That is, yeah, is I, it works demographically,
2: doesn't it? Yeah, it does work demographically. I don't know that that's the way I would go. I mean, a little bit of me thinks that, especially with Fiorina, to put Fiorina in the VP slot looks like you're saying, me too. It really, it, it looks like a crass
6: play. It's,
0: it's saying, we've got a woman also.
2: Yeah, it's saying, we've got a woman also. and it, I mean, she's... Look, if she isn't ready to be vice, if she isn't ready to be president, then it's not clear why she should be ready to be vice president either. Uh, you know, I'm I, Paul Begala, who, despite what one may, you know, our political differences, I actually think is a very smart guy. Um, he talked last year a little bit about what it was like inside the decision process for picking Gore as Clinton's VP in 1992, and what he said was that, all of Clinton's advisors were telling him, we need to get somebody who's old. We need to get somebody who is from outside of the South because we want to minimize your liabilities. And Clinton said, no, that's exactly wrong. I want gore because he doubles down on all these things that people think are my liabilities and he turns them into strengths." And I wonder if that isn't, I mean, it clearly worked for Clinton. Clinton is a, a political genius, a master of political theater. He really understands those sorts of things. I wonder if if you had Ru- Rubio or Cruz as your nominee, if they wouldn't also want to double down with somebody who is very much like them as their VP, rather than trying to balance the ticket in some way.
0: Well, who would um, that be? Put yourself then in the Rubio seat. Uh, let's say he gets the nomination. Oh, towards whom, if he followed your strategy, uh, oh, uh, towards whom might he th- uh, go for the VP nomination?
2: Well, see this. Is- where it gets complicated. Four weeks ago, I would have said without hesitating for a moment, Scott Walker. Scott Walker uh-huh. was in the, uh, obso- absolutely the obvious guy. He's another young, reform-minded conservative. Yeah. He compliments well, but Walker's washed out. I actually think it would be very hard to pick him now. He really showed that he didn't have what it took to hang in there. So I don't know what the answer is, uh, frankly. You know, and This is why I mean, it would be a very, very hard choice no matter who it is. Although it is interesting that the last two successful presidents um, and guys who each won two terms picked VPs who were total non-factors. I mean, they very, very deliberately chose people who were not obvious successors and who did not bring anything conventional to the ticket. Mm. So, in that sense, I do wonder if maybe that is... we, we Maybe we've moved a little bit past the idea of, of VP being able to bring people into the election, uh, and we've really rested a lot more on the top of the ticket and, and made that person more indispensable.
0: Yeah, here's the comment, or and or a question from uh, Ed Lasky.
4: Well, I was wondering, uh, if let's use Rubo as an example, if he might pick a governor with uh, some executive experience, it's, that might be a complement to his own skills, thinking maybe Nikki Haley of South Carolina, they've got a very successful governor there. Um, any potential governors that might fit the bill?
2: People talk about Nikki Haley and Susanna Martinez. Uh, I've heard them a bunch. I've heard Tim Scott, um, who's a senator, not a governor, uh, you know, you could see I guarantee you this, if Jeb Bush had been the nominee, all the talk would have been about Kasich, which is, <laughs> of course, you know, the, the most conventional, uh, stupid Republican thinking of, well, we have a nominee from Florida, if we just get a VP from Ohio, then we have this thing wrapped up, you know. Uh, I think that would be disastrous. I think John Kasich showed once again last night why he shouldn't be anywhere near a ticket. Why?
0: What did Kasich actually show? Uh, last night that would put you off.
2: Uh, well, that he hates Republicans. <laughs> it's kind of the problem. He, this morning he, he was asked about the debate moderators last night, and he said that he thought they did a great job. Yeah, he did do that. He's, he's, <laughs> the only this shows how out of step. I would say he's further out of the Republican mainstream than John Huntsman was you know, four years ago. So I don't know. It's very interesting. I mean, the real question is, like, who would Trump pick? You know, imagine Trump is the nominee. Who who seems like an obvious. Uh, VP for Trump, and I don't know Carson.
3: That. Carson, he picks Carson.
2: Yeah, well, could he, or do, or would he have to pick somebody who really does look like an experienced Washington hand to try to reassure independent voters that you know what, you can vote for this guy, and it's not crazy. Yeah, you know, he isn't actually going to you know make the White House gold lame and you know start a war with Russia or something like that.
3: Yeah, I I think one of the uh, interesting things that you brought up, uh, Jonathan, was about uh, how Cruz is considered establishment by some because he holds elective office. And uh, there's some people laying out sort of a scenario now where the two real finalists, assuming Trump and Carson both prove to be impossible choices at the top of the ticket, will be Cruz versus Rubio. And if that happens... The sort of anti-establishment conservative base, the Freedom Caucus mm-hmm. and the House of Representatives, you know, those senators who are always ready to, to stop spending bills. Uh, Cruz is their champion. He is the champion of the base. People are passionate about him who are the base, but who always think that there's, the base is a lot larger than it is and that there are millions of people out there who will suddenly show up at the polls if only somebody like Cruz is the nominee. Uh, but I think that could get quite bitter. If Cruz and Rubio are the finalists, and uh, that could be sort of a death struggle over the next few years. And I think there's, if anything, the potential that uh, an otherwise attractive Republican nominee uh, could get savaged by an opponent over the next few months because both of them see a realistic option to be nominated and the other is their opponent.
2: Yeah, you know, I've, I've thought for, i say for a couple months now, I've thought it likely that our two real finalists down the stretch would be Cruz and Rubio. And you know, the way the primary calendar is set, you could see it going pretty deep. I mean, you could see these guys fighting through until May. And the question is, how acrimonious would it be? Uh, yeah, I mean, Rubio, it is a testament to the power of the Tea Party and to how much they've done, I think, good things for the Republican Party, that a guy like Rubio is now considered an establishment kind of centrist guy. I mean, don't forget, he came up through the Tea Party in Florida. He was considered a real reformer. Uh, so, you know, and if you talk about VP, if you did get to May and you had one of those guys becoming the nominee and it was a bitter, uh, really difficult fight, then the obvious thing to do is you heal the party by picking number two. You know, this is, this is what John Kerry did a little bit in 2004. It's part of the reason he picked Edwards, he picked the guy who finished second. The thing is that that heals the party and it brings all the people who are dissatisfied with how things turned out right back into the tent right away. And I think that I would not rule that out. And I don't know how well those guys get along. Cruz is pretty famous for not getting along with hardly anybody. He, is supposed to be not, he was not well-liked within the Bush administration. Uh, he is really not well-liked within the Senate. Now, that may be a badge of honor, not being liked by Mitch McConnell. I don't know. Uh, but I would say if I, were, if I were one of those guys, I would probably be pretty wary of the other.
0: You know, I have a sense. I wonder, Jonathan, if you would confirm this or tell me that I'm simply way off. I have a sense that the division within the Republican Party is beginning to diminish, or fade, or sort of change into something less than a hard barrier. Uh, the Republican establishment uh, and uh, the what used to be the Tea Party and now is called other various other things. Uh, some of those are represent some of those differences are represented in this large batch. Of Repub- Republican candidates, but basically, it doesn't seem to be the sort of difference uh, which led to, say, the nomination of Barry uh, Goldwater uh, against um, the establishment man uh, Rockefeller, which is where all of this tr- struggle and turmoil within the Republican Party uh, really began, at least as it related to presidential politics. Uh, what's happening to the party? What's ve- what's revealed about the party as we look at the? dynamics, including uh, of, the, of the presidential election. And we ought to include in, of course, also the coronation just today of Ryan as Speaker.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is a long-term thing that we've seen over the last 40 years or so, which is the two parties sorting themselves out ideologically. Uh, there have been a bunch of good books written about this. Um, one of them is not explicitly about politics, but it touches on it a lot, it's called The uh, the Big Sort by Bill Bishop, a fabulous writer. I recommend everybody read it. And what, what he looks at is the way that the two parties sort of themselves out, both geographically and ideologically. So it used to be, you know, back in the days of Goldwater, you would have, the reason those fights were so bitter is because you had Republicans who were very, very liberal, who lived in you know one place, like the uh, like uh, the Northeast. And then you would have Republicans who were very, very conservative down in a place like Arizona, where Goldwater was from. And that is now, we've really sorted all of that. If you're conservative now, no matter where you live, you are Republican. And if you are liberal, you are Democrat. Uh, this is part of what's going on with the political polarization in our country. Uh, it's part of the reason we have these reasonably hard divisions between red states and blue states. Uh, and they're, they're reasonably impregnable. There's only a few states that are really in play every year. Uh, and that's, it's a very interesting fact of life. But also, don't forget these things are never frozen in amber. So we're still moving. We're still everything is always still sort of shuffling and sorting itself out. And I think one of the legacies of the Obama years are you're going to see, uh, especially within the Democratic Party, you're going to see a lot of white flight. Uh, the Democratic Party is going to become even less white. The Republican Party is likely to become more white. Uh, this explain, again, do, this is probably a bad thing. Do pause
0: us. and explain that. Why would you have white flight from the Dem- Democratic Party?
2: So, I would look look at the two thousand and eight contest between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, and yeah. you saw the extent to which white collar white I sorry blue collar white voters in that contest were really not wanted. Uh, I mean, there, there was a real sense of uh, we like urban white professionals. Uh, The party likes those people. It does not like bitter clingers. The famous Obama complaint about the people who bitterly to their guns religion. Remember, he was talking about white Democrats. He was not talking about Republicans. He was talking about about what we used to call
0: in one particular season, Reagan Democrats.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also just think about this, just tactically, if you're a Republican and you are looking at the state of American politics in 2012, thinking about how do you win the White House, well, you could try to increase your share of the Hispanic vote by like 80 percent, or you could try to increase your share of the white vote by one and a half percent, both of which will net you about the same number of votes. Well, which seems like the easier pathway, you know? And I, again, I think there's actually this sort of ethnic balkanization, and racial polarization mm-hmm. of parties is probably bad for everybody in the long run. Uh, but for the moment, at least, it probably seems like it's the near term future.
0: Here's Richard Bear. Yeah.
3: yeah, I actually think uh, one of the Republican uh, prospects in 2016 is simply that the black participation rate is not as high as it was in 2008 or 2012, and a Republican goes back to their more normal 10 to 12 percent of the black vote as opposed to 3 percent in 2008 and 6 percent in 2012. That actually makes more of a difference in a state like Pennsylvania than increasing the Hispanic vote considerably does in most states where there are a lot of Hispanic voters, because states like New York and California and New Jersey are simply unwinnable for the Republican Party. So small shifts can help, even if it uh, is not something that the Republicans have earned. It's simply that a sort of a a phenomenon, which was Barack Obama and and what he meant to black voters, uh, is no longer essentially on the ticket.
2: Yeah, Richard, that's so so smart. That's so right. this is totally true. If you look at the voting numbers for the last cycle in 2012, African-Americans have the highest voting participation rate of any of the measured ethnic groups in the U.S. for the first time. And I want to say for forever, but it, it, they may, it may have happened once or twice before. This is a really big deal for Democrats. And what must scare Democratic strategists going forward is what does a world look like for them post-Obama in terms of the African-American turnout? If those numbers go back to just the levels that they were in say like two thousand or nineteen ninety six that's really really problematic, but doesn't the American African-American political
0: world also begin to look to them more and more hispanic
2: uh yeah, I think it probably does um but they you know hispanics are are different than than African American voters just in the sense that you know you have so many different nationalities and different experiences. Uh, You know, I would say people who are the children of illegal immigrants are going to be different than Cuban children, of Cuban immigrants. Uh, It's a harder nut to crack. And I would say you, you do, if you're the Democrats, this coalition of the future, which they've talked themselves into believing in, becomes a little bit harder to hold together and a little bit harder to sustain than they have thought. And I think they're now starting to contemplate what that looks like. If you're Hillary Clinton, especially, you know, she's now going to be the nominee, almost certainly, probably. Like a ninety-five percent confidence interval on her becoming the Democratic nominee, it it's very daunting. Worrying about what happens to her in the general election if the black participation rate falls. Historically, presidents from the nominees from the same party running for the third term for their party after a two-term incumbent uh, typically lose. I want to say it's four and a half percent on right. the vote share of mm-hmm. the incumbent's last total. So that puts her already at like forty-eight percent of the vote just assuming that everything breaks for her the same way, roughly, that it did for Obama. So her road is pretty tough, and that's one of the reasons I think Republicans might be willing to roll the dice on a candidate who they wouldn't normally take, because, again, things are aligned pretty well for them for 2016.
0: Does that all point towards Rubio again?
2: I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Again, Rubio is, what I, what so impresses me with Rubio is that he is, for me, he is like Bill Clinton circa 1992. He is one of the great political talents. Mm -hmm. He's probably the great political talent of his generation.
0: I fear we must stop at this point. We've got, uh, we still serve capitalism, as I'm sure you want us to do. We've got some commercials coming, but it's been wonderful having you here and very, very illuminating indeed. So many, many thanks to Jonathan Last and actually your colleague Fred Barnes is coming on with us after these commercials and a uh, uh, a brief newscast. And uh, with that, we pause for this. We don't hear anything here. Now you've hit the right button, and now we do hear me. So I suppose we are heard as well by Fred Barnes, who's at the other end in Washington, I trust. Are you there, sir? I'm here. And you, um, what did you do last night to amuse yourself?
8: <laughs> well, you know, I, I really wanted to watch a basketball game. Uh, <laughs> I'm a fan of the Washington Wizards, but, you know, I figured i better watch the Republican presidential debate, and it was a good decision that I did.
0: It was just as... At least as amusing as the basketball game would have been.
8: <laughs> anyway, it was, uh, you know, it was quite a debate. Um, you know, I've never seen the uh, so much blame going to the questioners. Uh, certainly, more blame went to them, and it was deserved uh, than to any other candidate.
0: Let me uh, play. Uh, it's only about a minute and uh, uh, fifteen seconds. Uh, the response by Cruz, which sort of summarizes the way in which they attacked them.
6: Uh, Senator Cruz, congressional Republicans, Democrats, and the White House are about to strike a compromise that would raise the debt limit, prevent a government shutdown, and calm financial markets that fear of another Washington-created crisis is on the way. Does your opposition to it show that you're not the kind of problem-solver American voters want?
2: You know, let me say something at the outset. The questions that have been asked so far in this debate illustrate why the
8: American people don't trust the media. This is not a cage match. And you look at the questions, Donald Trump, are you a comic book villain? Ben Carson, can you do math? John Kasich, will you insult two people over here? Marco Rubio, why don't you resign? Jeb Bush,
2: why have your numbers fallen? How about talking about the substantive issues people care (laughs) about?
6: Is this do, I, do we get credit for this one and,
8: and Carl, Carl I, I'm not finished yet the contrast with the democratic debate where every fawning question from the media was which of you is more handsome and wise
0: <laughs> um does that speak for you would you say
8: yeah it, it would you know I was sitting there watching it with my wife and my reaction was wow <laughs> it was really it was really pretty striking and he I don't know how he remembered all those, all those instances. Maybe he was writing them down, but, but he, really, he really touched all the bases. And, you know, you could have had a perfectly good question there. It, it started with uh, outlining uh, what this uh, uh, budget deal uh, that cropped up this week consisted of and, and what effect it might have, but then asked, asked the question, well, it, it was a hostile question to uh, Ted Cruz. When, if you really wanted to know what Cruz thought or what others thought, you could have said, well, what do you think of that deal, uh, Senator Cruz? But that's not what they asked. What
0: What's your analysis? It's only an incidental issue. It doesn't really ultimately determine or even affect the outcome uh, of the race. But what's your analysis of what went wrong at CNBC? Or did it go right? Is that what they really wanted to do?
8: Um. You know, I think it was... A question of uh, a matter of they wanted to ask questions uh that were lively you know and would stick it to the uh, uh the candidate something uh, i think cruz was right something they do not do uh, uh in the case of democrats uh but this is the way most of the mainstream media views republicans you know we can ask them these pointed uh gotcha questions uh and in the past of course republicans have accepted it but they uh, they didn't miss time, and you know, Cruz was followed by Marco Rubio, who was Marco Rubio, who was very good the whole evening. Uh, we the one where he said the Democrats have a super PAC. It's called it's called the mainstream media. Yes. Um. The uh, but this was worse because the question, i mean, there were gotcha questions, to were petty questions. They turned major issues like that budget deal—it's a major issue this week, anyway—into uh, a gotcha question. I mean, it, that's, uh, uh, among other things, Milt, I think it was unprofessional.
0: Uh, I'm informed. I don't re- uh, know why at all. But people seem to suspect that people at the Weekly Standard uh, prefer the de- Republican candidate, whoever that might be, to the Democratic candidate. And we know who that will be. Um,
8: yeah, well, that's true. Um, I mean, we're a conservative <laughs> magazine.
0: Of course Obviously, we are. we're more inclined toward the Republicans than the Democrats. I don't think that
8: changes uh, the way the debates have gone so far. No,
0: but I was wondering whether it I was wondering whether it does change is the general attractiveness of the Democratic candidate. Uh, these people made such fools of themselves and were so clearly guilty of bad use of the reportorial or uh, or managerial position that they were in managing mm-hmm. the debate uh, that uh, it may well have swung some people who were watching to the thought. Well, sure, I sort of saw. The, the the possibility of Mrs. Clinton, but they really are just dreadful in the way they play this, and it is time to go back to a Republican. Couldn't that really have been the effect, clicking inside the brains or inside the hypothalamus? That's where the real seat of emotion, uh, of well, lots lots of viewers.
8: Well, I have to say it didn't occur to me, but now that you uh, spell that out, I think that's a possibility because the questions were so over-the-top, so hostile, so obviously asked in bad faith, so obviously asked not to elicit information or the view of uh, the candidate uh, who was getting the question, uh, his view of an issue. Uh, They were asked in in hopes of embarrassing the candidates or at least putting them in an uncomfortable position uh, by the nature of the the question. Issues were fine. It was the way they uh, asked the questions that... um, Uh, was not fine. And uh, look, I think this
4: badly hurts CNBC.
0: Let me turn you over to the tender mercies of Ed Lasky and Richard Baer, both leading people at The American Thinker.
4: Well, um, I think that what we saw last night were political attacks by the commentators in the guise of questions. And I'm glad that various candidates on stage injected that sort of meme into the mainstream now, that people who watched it will be on the lookout for similar sort of... uh, Soft treatment of Hillary Clinton uh, going forward, and hopefully it will immunize um, some people from just accepting, you know, these easy questions and softball answers as you know reflecting reality. Um, I have to say, I watch uh, CNBC for a living, basically uh, nine hours a day, and the commentators that I that's because in
0: real life you were a stock trader.
4: That's correct. And I have not seen any bias uh, among the CNBC commentators. Sometimes they have politicians on. Sometimes they have right-leaning uh, Republican business leaders on. I haven't seen any sort of treatment meted out to them that I saw last night. So I'm beginning really to think that it was MSNBC that drafted those questions and talking points. And you know, we saw John Hayward, <laughs> hey, uh, you know, just begin with a blast, you know, calling, uh, you know, Harwood calling Trump's plan basically a comic book plan. And, uh, you know, that set the tone for the rest of the evening. And I'm beginning to think, you know, he or his assistants drafted the question, because when uh, CNBC has Harwood on, he always is very biased, in my opinion, to be honest.
3: Yeah, one of the things I thought that was uh, interesting last night is uh, you have 10 Republicans on the stage, But there seemed to be a certain unity about the issue of media bias, because it wasn't just Cruz who talked about it. It was also uh, Chris Christie at one point. uh, Rubio got into it. Uh, This was a theme that's extremely popular, as Gingrich proved back in 2012 when he uh, launched into one of those uh, attacks on the media in in a debate then. And as a result, you get this negativism that's directed towards Washington, uh, the negativism about America's future. And you throw into that sort of soup this sense that the media has been a part of that and the media is also part of the problem. And I think if if those people, the small percentage of Americans who are really fluid in terms of who they vote for, start to think of the media or get that impression based on what happened last night, uh, and it's reinforced by Republican candidates, that's helpful to whoever the nominee will be because There'll be sort of a circumspection anytime you start seeing what appears to be attacks directed against Republicans that aren't directed against Democrats.
4: You know, it'll be interesting this Saturday night to see if Saturday Night Live um, deals with this issue at all. I remember in 2008, they did deal with the softball treatment that Barack Obama was getting relative to Hillary Clinton, you know, offering Barack Obama a pillow if he was uncomfortable in the seat. I remember <laughs> that that segment. I and, remember that. Uh, famous segment. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see of popular culture picks up on this theme um, as highlighted by uh, Saturday Live this weekend
0: It will be interesting to see as well what uh, Donald Trump is going to do with this He can't merely have uh, given us his full reaction a while behind the podium uh, last night This is going to be part of the theme of his continuing campaigning, I'm sure
3: uh, the, the guy is well, really see- yeah, go, ahead. go ahead, Fred yeah, no,
8: I think it should. But I, I'll tell you, I'm, uh, I'm a little, uh, I'm a little dubious of whether this uh, really graphic example of uh, media bias is going to change anybody's mind. It's not as if liberal bias is a new phenomenon that just cropped up with uh, CNBC folks at a debate. Uh, it's been going on for decades. Uh, this was a more vivid uh, example of it. But um, I'm, I guess I'm just a. Uh, uh, jaded after seeing so much of it over the years in the media, both in newspapers, magazines, and now on television that um, you know, expecting it to change anybody's mind, if they haven't noticed liberal bias by now and how egregious it can be, <coughs> uh, they may never notice it, or, or at least draw the right conclusion from it that the media is part of the
0: problem. I, I should tell you, uh, Fred, that uh, so far today, uh, our two guests in studio, Richard <coughs> Baer and Ed Lasky, and Larry Sabato, who was with us earlier, and then your mm-hmm. colleague, Jonathan Last. all four of those worthy persons have uh, agreed, I think, that the one who profited most in that debate last night was Rubio, and that he begins mm-hmm. to look more and more plausible as a presidential choice. What do you say?
8: I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, he has been, he is one of the, a uh, few members of the Republican presidential class 2016 that has, it is really three for three. He's been very strong, a very strong presence in, in all three debates. Um, actually, uh, Ted Cruz has been awfully good in all three, too. Uh, Trump is, I don't know how you uh, really rate him. He's certainly been a strong presence, and I think he's helped himself in those debates. Uh, but particularly Rubio, he really stands out. When I wrote about it last night, I I, I, I don't use this word much, but I I use the word dazzling uh, because he uh, every question he seemed to be, and some of them were very pointed. You know, the one, particularly the one about that he he ought to uh, resign because he's not spending enough time uh, casting votes in in the Senate where he was elected to uh, cast votes, among other things, and then. George, uh, uh, Jeb Bush jumped in and tried to use that issue as well, and I thought uh, hurt himself. I mean, it was pathetic, particularly after the strong response uh, that Rubio had. I mean, he seemed to be extremely well prepared, uh, particularly for hostile questions, uh, which is one of the tests of, uh, of anybody in one of these nationally televised debates. But uh, uh, Rubio has helped himself in all three debates, even more so in this one last night.
0: Actually, my two guests here in studio uh, richard and ed uh, were agreeing earlier perhaps uh, as we were chatting privately perhaps on the air i don't remember now but we're both agreeing that in essence uh bush uh, ended it for himself last night that he no longer uh, has any possibility at all
8: well i wouldn't say that you know the uh, uh bush can uh recover remember this is the year before we're still uh, it's late yeah. october but the voting doesn't begin until <clears throat> february and and uh, and often the polls are more i mean the uh what we've seen in the past is polls and even debates the year before the actual voting uh, tend not to be predictive but uh i'll have to say bush has turned out to be an extremely weak candidate and i don't know who gave him the uh notion that he should attack rubio for missing senate votes and so that would be uh a good way to go that was certainly bad advice and bush look pretty pathetic in raising it as well, particularly after that really smashing response to that whole issue that uh, we'd heard from Rubio. But, you know, we'll see. Uh, Look, I think there's another thing that uh, people don't talk about. uh, 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 The media hasn't. I am not a fan of Donald Trump, and yet last night I thought showed something about Trump. I mean, Trump uh, seems to have realized and have an an instinct that, you know, it's time for him to be a more conventional candidate. Uh, he's already built up uh, this working class uh, coalition that uh, supports him. He's got a lot of supporters, uh, and he and he doesn't need to scream and yell and insult people anymore. I thought uh, I thought his uh, performance, if you want to call it that, uh, was actually pretty good and and very telling that he's uh, realized that he needs to be a more. Uh, Agreeable
0: candidate. I think his message was to all who are already his fans, or some who doubt him. uh, His message was sotto voce. By the way, I can also be dignified, uh, (laughs) rather than rather than assaultive. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah, The the startling thing is, I mean, we're again a couple months out from Iowa, uh, and we have two candidates who have never run before, uh, who six months ago weren't even in the conversation and uh, are now drawing about 50% of the national vote and leading in every state primary. Uh, In many states, they run one, two, and by decisive margins over whoever's in third place. Uh, And in particularly with regard to Trump, a good part of his coalition are not reliable Republican voters who turn out every election. I don't don't think that's the case with, with Carson, who draws very well among evangelicals, Uh, who do tend to vote in high percentages and vote and support Republicans. So the, the rest of the party and the rest of the candidates have to, I think, be cautious with Trump, because there's something he's tapped into and people he's attracting, who if the Republicans can in fact bring to the polls next November, they have a chance of expanding their total vote, which unless they find a way to do that, they're going to come a couple million votes
4: short as they have the last two times. Well, I know George Will wrote a column a couple of weeks ago speculating that that was Ted Cruz's uh, strategy uh, and going soft on on Donald Trump and not attacking him directly because he would hope to capture some of those, as Milt said earlier in the program, Reagan Democrats that seem to be uh, very receptive to Donald Trump's message. You know, we've seen over the past seven years, stagnant real income growth, labor participant rates, labor participation rates at a low increase, uh, massive increase in food stamps and disability payments. I mean, there are very dismayed, indignant people. And I think he's tapping into that um, sort of feeling and and bringing bringing those people maybe even across the aisles, probably across the aisles, many of them. And as we discussed earlier, um, a lot of those uh, white males might be defecting, or might be amenable to be de- defecting from the Democratic Party uh, come next year. Um, I want to. I'm take... not sure how many
8: Reagan Democrats are left. Uh, <laughs> there were certainly a lot of them when Reagan was running, but you know the parties have uh have, have polarized and divided even more since then. And uh, well, we'll see. Uh, I think there is something you have to watch out with uh, with Trump. One, I don't think attacking does any good, but, you, but uh, disagreeing with him is fine, but on the immigration issue, uh, that's an issue that can cause Republicans a lot of trouble. Uh, a lot of Republicans don't want to hear this, but the truth is uh, they need to do be better among immigrant groups and minorities. Now, I I don't think there's much chance of uh, of uh, getting a huge gain uh, with the African American vote, which is one that has just become heavily Democratic. It was. It, it's not just Obama that has attracted a a. a uh, a, a, a vote from african americans at greater than 90 percent of their electorate uh but the republicans will do a little better by uh, by a few points but hispanics is a group where republicans need to do better and they can do better uh and certain candidates like Cory gardner of colorado and winning a senate seat in 2014 and uh, and others have shown that if you try to get the Hispanic vote, you don't need to promise them a path to citizenship, but you need to show up at their events, and talk to them and, and take them seriously. Uh, other candidates have found out, like Ed Gillespie here in Kenya, where I live, outside like, like Washington, I discovered that, you know, they're not asking for a path to citizenship, but they are interested in being legalized in this country if they have clean records. And uh, the Hispanic vote is growing, and you can't... Uh, vote where Republicans think to do better
0: and I think really can do better. Um, I have a pessimistic sort of question or a brooding sort of question with which we'll end. I know that you've got many other things to do and shortly we have to go to commercials and so on. but it is this simply uh, make the worst case. Suppose in fact that Mrs. Clinton wins and we now have eight more years of a second Clinton presidency. Um, what will that do to the nation? What will that do, for that matter, to the Weekly Standard?
8: Gee, Which I don't is know one what of my favorite Weekly stand. Yeah, go the ahead. The Standard will be very unfriendly toward uh, uh, Mrs. Clinton unless she uh, transforms herself again into uh, Bill Clinton and 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 like his presidency. But she's headed so far to the left, I don't see how she can turn back. What we'll know is that all of uh, Obama's. Uh, uh break just even all his executive orders but particularly Obamacare and the dodd-frank bill and and other things uh will be uh, just locked into law you know it, look Obamacare can still be substantially repealed with a new Republican president being inaugurated in January 2017 but after eight years of another Democratic mm-hmm. president um, you know Obamacare which is a, we see it failing in many ways around the country, but it'll be locked in. We just won't be able to get rid of it.
0: The prospect is not pleasing, is it?
8: No, it's not pleasing. And and then when you see the other things, I mean, Hillary Clinton uh, seems to think that the, global warming should be a commanding issue and uh, mm-hmm. affect uh, what we do energy-wise and so on. And the spending that they talk about is, uh, you know, one of the things you didn't hear in that first Democratic debate was the word, Growth, as in economic growth, uh, they seem to have completely uh, ignored that. though. one of the things that made the Clinton presidency, Bill Clinton presidency, palatable to so many people, who even those that, who may not have voted for him, is that he did try to promote economic growth, even to the point of reducing, uh, along with Republicans, uh, the capital gains rate. So. Uh, This is a very different Democratic Party, and it scares me to think that they would be in power uh, with a Democratic president for another eight
0: years. I haven't even uh, touched on the foreign policy. Here's the last comment before we pause and let you uh, uh, and allow you to free yourself from our uh, annoyance. Here is a comment from uh, Richard Baer.
3: Yeah, I slightly disagree on the the Democrats' concept of growth because I think they do believe that stimulus— is the key to growth in the American economy, stimulus being more government spending.
0: Well, and I don't
3: believe in incentives, though. No, no.
0: Fred, with that, I thank you most sincerely. You've contributed a great Fred. deal, as you always have. And uh, <laughs> I'll read the. Uh, I want to read the current issue, because I gather you've written about these people yet once again. And we'll uh, continue to read the Weekly Standard as one of your great fans. With that, we pause uh, for some commercial messages. And we return to our two in-studio guests, Richard Baer and Ed Lasky, both of The American Thinker. I've already confessed my loyalty to and pleasure taken in reading The American Thinker and The Weekly Standard. To that, I would add one or two others, of course, particularly, I suppose, The National Review. Uh, But uh, we're in the realm of conservative publications. Uh, which ones do the American thinker crowd read when they're not reading American thinker?
4: Well, I'll speak for myself uh, right now. Anyway, um, I would agree with Milt's choices, but you know, there's uh, there's excellent blogs out there as well. You know, uh, Powerline is one of my favorite blogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reason magazine has also has some very provocative ideas. The Cato Institute, you know, sort of libertarian sorts of uh, publications. Um, And, you know, I do read periodically. Actually, I subscribe to The New York Times. I think The New Yorker is interesting. I'm a true liberal in that sense, as I'm open-minded. I want to hear what both sides um, say. So, you know, I I run the spectrum. I'm liberal and conservative. Yeah, two that I uh, think are well worth reading are Commentary
3: and uh, City Journal. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Atlantic is interesting because they sometimes have articles from both sides in the same issue on a similar topic. Uh, and you don't often get those kind of exchanges now because most journals have become uh, more more polarized. Uh, the the other one's interesting that's on the left that you occasionally will see a stunning article because it doesn't seem to agree with the, the point of view of the publication is Vox, which is Ezra Klein's journal mm-hmm. that he created after he uh, didn't get the money he wanted from the Washington Post. They've had a couple articles
0: in the last week that simply shouldn't have been in Vox, really. I, yep. don't, I don't I check that one. Yep. Uh, let me right now, I'm about to read you some emails which have arrived before we solicited them, uh, but let me now invite any who are so inclined to email us or to phone us. If you want to phone us, the number 847-475-1590, 847-475-1590, and we always welcome telephone calls. We get somehow more email, however, and we welcome that as well. For uh, the email, you go to Milt, M-I-L-T, at 1590wcgo.com. Milt at 1590wcgo.com. And gentlemen, let me read some of these and get your responses. Um, uh, we do have a lot of online listeners uh, elsewhere as well as in the Chicago realm. Here is one from Casper in, uh, who's online in Oregon. And he says, Great panel today. I heard someone mention George Will, and I am enjoying Fred Barnes. If I could only wear a tie like George Will, or my eyeglasses stylishly like Fred Barnes, I would be in the higher echelons of life. (laughs) That doesn't require any further comment, I'm sure, but uh, there is a sartorial dimension to political identity, apparently. Uh, Let's go to a caller. Ken in Elmhurst is with us. Uh, good afternoon, sir.
7: Good afternoon. Uh, my commentary on the debate last night—I thought Ted Cruz hit a home run when he attacked the liberal media, and it—the best thing about it, I think, it was spontaneous. It wasn't something that was rehearsed, and uh, it, it just—you know—and it responded. Uh, the audience responded, and it's yeah. That was of the clip that we
0: them. that we played a little while ago.
7: Right. Yeah. And one thing I want to say is, like, after the first debate. Uh, Eric Zorn, who is a liberal columnist at the Tribune, uh, said that he thought that Kasich should be the nominee and he's the guy that he'd be supporting. And then today, in Lynn Sweet in the Sun-Times, the headline on her column was that Kasich won the debate, which to me was ridiculous. And I'm just wondering, is there the hmm. liberal media? Are they getting behind Kasich in, just as in case Hillary melts down because that's somebody that they could live with?
3: Uh, I, yeah, uh, good question. I think the uh, the the liberals will always prefer whoever the nominee of the Democratic Party is. But since there's a chance, because the country is basically close to 50-50 split, that the Republicans win, they'd want the closest thing to a Democrat wh- to lead the Republican Party, If just in case a Republican wins. So they'll get a Democrat whos they get a Republican who's at least got some Democratic uh, tendencies. Uh, to conclude that, case Kasich won yesterday's debate, I think, would be a, kind of a shocking misreading— <laughs> Of what went on yesterday? I oh know. no, that
7: was when I saw that this morning in the paper. I mean, it was a real head scratcher. I'm like, yeah. what was she watching? You know, delusional. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for your comment.
0: Well, we thank you for the call, sir. Uh, and quickly to more email. After watching both, oh, this one is from Atlanta, Listening online in Atlanta, Gary, who says, after watching both the GOP and Democratic debates, I think we should just let Obama run, paren, and win again. It seems about what we deserve.
3: Yeah, I can't tell from that whether we have a liberal or conservative. We it have could, a conservative. It, yeah, okay. Assuming it's a conservative, uh, uh, I think it's it's too critical of the Republican field. Which actually, if the debate was sort of clumsy and uh, appeared to be sort of out of control last night, I, I really attribute most of that to the the way it was organized and run by the by the three three panelists. I think Republicans actually, in some ways have a better field, a broader field, a more capable field this year uh, than they have had in in many years. And there may be some people who people think are uh, sort of joke candidates in that field. uh, But there are some very serious, capable people there. And I think uh, if the Republicans happen to get one of them to lead the ticket, uh,
4: they have a decent shot of, of winning next year. You know, I would say that I was a little disappointed last night because the focus was supposed to be on the economy and business. And no one mentioned an issue that's looming and that will hit in full force in 2016, and that's the uh, shocks from o- Obamacare. You know, the premium increases are skyrocketing. I hear you know many anecdotes, and <clears throat> you know, the plural of anecdotes is not necessarily data, but there's going to be a lot of dissatisfaction when people realize that Obamacare is failing. And failing rapidly. And the full force of that, I think, is going to strike people uh, come the presidential race. And before Obamacare, there was Hillary Care. The Republican Party has disappointed in me in even dro- seemingly dropping this issue. And it's, it, it could also explain uh, a lot of the weakness in the economy, the job hiring and, and the uh, cost of new employees is very high under Obamacare once you hit uh, the 50 person limit. And it's just, disappointing to me. But, you know, I, I will say this, too. Um, I'm always a little leery when people say, you know, we deserve this or we get this. You know, I hear that from New Yorkers. Oh, they deserve Mayor de Blasio. Well, there's a lot of people who did not vote for de Blasio. They don't deserve to be suffering the effects of his mayorality. And, you know, I could say the same thing about Rahm Emanuel here in Chicago. i I I'm always very reluctant to say we deserve this.
0: Since we've blundered onto or stumbled across the question of uh, of Obamacare, which really is there and uh, should persist, it's worth reminding you that your colleague Richard Baer uh, is not only chief political correspondent for The American Thinker, but runs Richard Baer & Associates, which is a firm that offers financial and strategic planning to healthcare care providers. Uh, you're a pro in health care provision. What are your views on Obamacare? Is there anything there that did us any good? Yeah, I, I think the uh, expansion of Medicaid uh,
3: did bring a lot of people without coverage uh, and gave them coverage uh, in states where there had been fairly low uh, signups for Medicaid in the past, even among up to the level that had been covered in the past. This program brought in not only people from the 100 to 138% of the poverty level, it also brought in some people who were below the 100% poverty level who had never signed up. So... Uh, You know, in states where I've been to, like Kentucky, Arkansas, and so on, uh, those states are having more people with access to care. And you can make an argument that that kind of traditional expansion of an entitlement, it's expensive, but at least you know what you're doing. It doesn't shake up everything else about the system. The exchanges are entirely different, and that's basically been an exchange of people who had care before under existing policies and now have to go through this mechanism. And this mechanism is so clumsy that it's led, I think, to the kind of forced inflation that was squeezed down for a couple of years and is now breaking out Mm -hmm. in the third
0: year. Uh, Back to the email. Uh, Nathan in Dyer, Indiana, signals the following. Ben Carson is simply too nice a guy to win he may be the smartest guy in the room, but he's not going to break anyone's arm when you need him. Drew.
3: Yeah, I, I, Carson to me is still um, something of a mystery, and I think he's a mystery to his opponents, which is why uh, mm-hmm. one of the reasons they don't know how to how to go after him because he still hangs up there and he's lo- very likely to win. I think the first first caucus, um, but the the concern that's there among those people who were not in his corner uh, is that you have to have sort of more of a steeled spine and be a lot tougher uh, because the reality of the world is the country is now split politically and those on the other side are not going to work with you just because you have decent ideas, want to sit down with them and, and do things constructively. The world doesn't sort of operate that way. You can see what Obama did to get Obamacare through, what he did to get the Iran deal through. I mean, they broke arms basically on their own side to get every single vote they needed. Uh, That's the way the polarization is forcing politics to operate. You either win the election or you lose, and the side that wins forces it down the throats of those who have lost. Um, And Carson doesn't fit that model right now. Whether he promises and some voters are excited by the possibility of something different, that may be naive.
4: Well, I think that's another reason why Marco Rubio sh- shined last night is he did show his spine. He's been very forward thinking in terms of predicting the foreign policies, disasters that would follow from Obama's agenda and policies. And I think internationally, we need somebody with you know, a firm grasp of the levers of power. And as much as I respect uh, Ben Carson as a person, and certainly as a world famous surgeon, I'm not sure he, he does have uh, a firm grasp of policy issues. And I'm not sure he's willing to exercise, um, you know, those sorts of tactics that might be necessary in the days ahead. I mean, I still remember one of the uh, most significant statements in my mind that Barack Obama said back during the uh, primary campaign in 2008 was, you know, he brings a gun to a knife fight. You know, to me, that was very predictive of how he would governor as president. He certainly hasn't shown that in the foreign policy arena, but in the domestic policy, you know, that was that was when that was a very truthful statement of his and I think we need somebody more forceful. You know, a, a few years ago that was Christie, right? I mean, during you know, 4 years ago that was going to be Christie, the strength, the power. You know, I'm still not necessarily counting him out. I think he ac- actually had a fairly decent night mm-hmm. last night, Christie. Um, we'll see in the future debates, and we'll also see the fundraising. I think one of the interesting points last night was the dynamic between Bush and Rubio, of course, because they're sort of frenemies. George, or Jeb Bush was a found Mark, Marco Rubio as a protege. You know, It's a very interesting relationship or an interesting dynamic. I thought Marco Rubio handled it quite well, almost in a, with a sense of sorrow when he said somebody told Jeb Bush, Advised jeb bush to attack me on this uh senate uh, attendance record you know it's it's it'll be interesting to see the fundraising totals because that is one area where marco rubio has not been stellar compared to trump bush ben carson ted cruz who has a wonderful fundraising record in operation and a strong ground game you know marco rubio really needs to pick up the pace
0: if psychoanalysis still existed as indeed and unhappily it sort of does, Then a psychoanalyst listening to us right now and listening to what you just said would say there is a strong, oedipal dimension to the uh, uh, Bush-Rubio situation at the moment.
4: I would think so, yeah. It's something Marco Rubio obviously has to handle very gingerly and tenderly. And it'll be an interesting uh, um, observation to see how deftly he handles that because the, the Bush family is a dynasty. They have power, they have influence, Will he be able to inherit that? Will, they, will the so-called establishment be able to comfortably move from supporting Jeb Bush to Marco Rubio? He has to be very careful, show respect, which I think he did last night. And in the days ahead, when Jeb Bush uh, and he go forward in the future debates, if it even lasts that long, I mean, some are predicting you know Jeb Bush is going to have a very interesting Thanksgiving because that's when the final decision might be made whether he stays in the race or not.
0: Uh, so says uh, Ed Bear, and uh, now says, uh, rather, Ed Lasky and now says Richard Baer.
4: Yeah,
3: I, I, Christy, I want to. I think deserves a little bit of attention. Uh, the mainstream media has sort of written him off since the closure of the lanes on uh, from Fort mm-hmm. Lee onto the George Washington Bridge a couple of years back, which he was not judged personally responsible for. Uh, but it's an issue that was a big deal for the New York Times, a good deal, big deal for liberal press in the New York metropolitan area. It's a total non-issue, really, with everybody else in the country. And Christie is is very good on the stage. He's tough. He's in control. Uh, he has authority. And uh, Christie is also a possibility as a vice president for some of the potential presidential candidates, but also is in the mix, I think... For the establishment sort of subprimary, assuming Bush fades further, because Rubio, exactly as Ed said, has not raised the money yet. There are some concerns that he's too young. And Christie is in the Northeast Corridor, where a lot of this money is to begin with, and uh, is a known. Um, And he's obviously going to try to make some issue of the fact that running a state is different than being a senator. That's always the argument that governors make. And um, he's not out of the mix uh, and could very well be on the ticket, given that some of the others who were once considered, you know, big players like Walker and Kasich and Bush are either out or on their way out.
0: This is totally irrelevant, but I can't resist it, because I've noticed a number of times that uh, Christie wears a yellow plastic band around his right wrist. And I don't know what, if anything, that... S- signifies or symbolizes I
4: was wondering the same thing last night, Mild I, I, There it is again, and I've got to Google it To figure out what it is
3: He had the Trump tie on him, which got a, a huge reception <laughs> Yeah
0: <laughs> uh, It's a curious
3: thing It is,
4: yeah. it is I wonder if there's, you know a be, the, Might be a 9-11 thing The cynic thing. in me yeah. begins to come out And wondering if there's some political significance that, You know, he's not highlighting it But it's yet it's there It's rather it's like visible. the
0: bands that they put around your wrist When you're in the hospital Right Also right. Uh, Be that as it may, we pause for a last round of messages. And we return directly to Richard Baer and Ed Lasky. Uh, And if you are moved to uh, get to us and get into this conversation, you must move very quickly. For phones, the number 847-475-1590. And for email, uh, you send it to milt at 1590wcgo.com. And we've got a good deal more email. Which keeps coming in. Gentlemen, here's one from Ted, who is listening online, obviously, in San Dimas, California. Uh, Anybody know that town? I don't either. (laughs) And uh, uh, he says, two questions for the panel. One, is it possible that CNBC took an intentionally antagonistic stance toward the candidates in hopes of reproducing the rave reviews that Fox News received after the first debate? Being a business-oriented network, they may have been bucking against the perception that business is biased in favor of conservatives. Two, do they think the Republican candidates discussed the media bias issue among themselves prior to the debate? It came off as a unified message, almost as talking points.
3: Yeah, I, I think the Trump responded to the very first question uh, by saying to uh Uh, Harwood that, uh, then that wasn't a very nice question in the way you asked that, which was actually much more civil than the question itself. Uh, Then you had Cruz when it finally got to a question to him did the sum up because it turned out it was five in a row that were the same way. And the question to Cruz was not just what are you going to do about this vote in the Senate, but it was more like we know you've beaten your wife in the past, so (laughs) what are you going to do next week to her? Um, So I, I don't think that it was so much any kind of uh, conspiracy by the candidates together to, to jump on the media. Uh, I don't think they knew exactly where this was going to come from because having a business channel do this is, is a relatively new thing. Um, and Harwood was expected to be antagonistic. Uh, the other two probably less so. And I think Becky Quick was, uh, wasn't as aggressive. Uh, I think the third guy was, was pretty aggressive too. Uh, But as far as as what they were trying to do and whether they thought they could sort of get away with it as a business channel, I think it's more the NBC bias, which runs through the entire network and all of their channels, Uh, and it's why they... Can, can always have th- their top professionals or people who at one point or another were Democratic staffers. Right. Who owns NBC these
4: days? Well, it's Comcast, and that's headed by the Roberts family who are super donors, mega donors yeah. to the Democratic Party. Barack Obama in particular, they've let Barack, uh, Roberts, who heads uh, Comcast, You know, has let Barack Obama stay at his house in Martha's Vineyard. He entertains the Obamas when they show up there on vacations. You know, I still remember the National Review cover from a few years ago that had a peacock representing the uh, NBC logo, of course, with Barack Obama petting the peacock um, as, you know, it's his pet network. And I maintain, you know, call me a peddler of a left-wing conspiracy, but I maintain that it was more MSNBC and NBC, as Richard uh, suggested, that infiltrated. CNBC because I watch as I mentioned C N B C they are not left wing at all. You know, it'll be interesting because I believe the next debate is Fox Business Network. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how those questions are uh, formulated. I and I don't think it was really any sort of get together, <laughs> like let's be prepared to attack the media. I think that's just the mindset now because of years of being used to this sort of treatment, and Newt Gingrich showed the way at South Carolina during the debate. You know, I think maybe this is, you know, their proper approach when these obnoxious insults are leveled in the guise of questions. Yeah,
3: but one thing I'll notice is that uh, Ted Cruz seems to think that this can be a real momentum point for his campaign because he's already sending out blast emails about media
4: bias as an issue that he plans to run on going forward. So. Mm-hmm. Well, it's one of the least respected institutions in America, only followed by Congress, of course, so... <laughs>
0: Uh, next email from Mitchell in Schaumburg. I found last night's debate to be delightfully entertaining. Uh, perhaps I've given up on any hope of some messianic leader who could go and fix D.C. If I were simply looking for someone with achievements, I'd probably support Kasich. But I've resigned myself to the wrestling match. I like that this candidate's tag uh, teamed that, that, that these candidates tag-teamed uh, the moderators. Rubio and Cruz did the most for me. And I thought that Trump was much more palatable after he softened his edge. At any rate, it's Hillary Clinton's to lose, so at least we've got that going for us.
3: Yeah, I, I'm not as confident uh, as a lot of people are that Clinton is a, is a lock winner next year, and I think the fact that she doesn't have any competition, really, until the convention's, Uh, And the short season from August through November uh, is going to damage her. I think the Republican nominee who will emerge from the kind of competition uh, that's going to exist over the next few months will be a stronger candidate, harder edged and sort of understanding of what works and what doesn't work as far as themes and messages. Um, So I I think Hillary is also a problematic candidacy because who hasn't made up their mind about her? The Republicans will be introducing somebody new, almost certainly, to the electorate. What percentage of the population in America doesn't have an opinion about Hillary Clinton now? They either like her, and they think oh the glass ceiling is going to be broken and this great political talent is going to take the take the stage, or they think she's uh, been living off of her husband's uh, political skills and uh, other than that probably wouldn't even be a, a door catcher at this point. Maybe she'd still be with a or law she firm. was the,
0: or she was living off the public tragedy of her husband's betrayal right. of her. Yeah, she played, has...
3: played that well, very well, too. But the, in terms of accomplishment, I mean, I think Carly Fiorina had it right. She flew a million miles, you know, Secretary of State, but that's not an achievement, that's an activity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard to come up with a list of all the things she's done. The major foreign policy event of her four years in the state was Libya, mm-hmm. which she encouraged an invasion. It was a disaster. The country c- broke up into a civil war. Uh, leading to just incredible brutality, worse than it had been envisioned, and then murder at, at our embassy, which was not properly secured, and then lies about what happened. This is her major foreign policy achievement over four
4: years in the State Department. Well, unless we forget the uh, infamous red uh, uh, reboot with uh, with the red button, which I always thought was juvenile um, with Russia, and we've seen where that has led to, <laughs> and it's, it's just getting worse. You know, and it's it's uh, it's shocking that. You know, we're letting this happen, but we are. And a big part of that was her reset with Russia. And you know she's, not, she's a poor candidate in many ways. I mean, she was the inevitable president, and she was the inevitable Democratic uh, leader back in 2008 until Barack Obama came along. I mean, she herself has a hard time listing her own achievements. And when you asked various Democratic supporters, actually on the Weekly Standard website, they had a video of uh, Democrats, and they asked them a variety of them. <clears throat> You know, what can you name any Hillary Clinton's um, victories or accomplishments? And they were at a loss for words. And I think a lot of Americans feel that way. And it'll be highlighted, you know, come the presidential race.
3: The two elections she won were against really weak Republican candidates in New York state, which traditionally votes about 60 percent plus for any Democratic on the ballot.
0: Yeah. Um, A last email. There's more waiting but time for only one more. Uh, Martin in Hoffman Estates uh, says, "Are we certain that Carly Fiorina is a robot? Perhaps she was created. Perhaps she was created by the HP Labs and is the first truly functional artificially intelligent and android to walk and operate among us."
4: Well, she was programmed to smile at the beginning of last night's yeah. debate. You know, that's she is a little robotic. And actually, I've thought her performance last night was pretty poor because it was very Did you? repetitive. You know, we. We've spent 20 years, 30 years, 40 years trying to deal with this problem, and nothing has happened. And that was basically, in many ways, her canned response whenever an issue was raised. We've The tax code is 77,000 pages long. It's been that way for 40 years. We haven't had tax reform. It seemed to be... Just her talking point over and over. I was disappointed in her performance last night. Yeah,
3: she she didn't seize the time the way she had in the second debate, where she made sure she wound up getting the third most speaking time, which is actually fairly incredible because you knew Trump was going to get the most, and whoever was the foil was going to get the second. Well, but most. we know
0: that Trump, in fact, ha- held back. He had the second lowest. yes yeah, last speaking night.
3: Time. Right. So, uh, she has her, you know, her answer on HP, which she has to get because she knows it's going to be attacked. I think the one thing that protected her last night was that Kasich was even more repetitive about the Ohio miracle. I mean, if I hear one more time about how many jobs they had lost before, how many they've gained, the deficit that's gone to a—it's like, enough already. You you did a good job as governor.
0: Wait until the current uh, ruler of Chicago, uh, sometime in the future, running for the presidency, speaks of the Chicago miracle. (laughs)
3: Yeah, the Chicago miracle. How many people you can drive out in how short a period of time.
4: (laughs) Detroit,
0: here we come. (laughs) Detroit is rebuilding, (laughs) if you can believe that. Well, gentlemen, we are indeed out of time. Um, The gentlemen to whom I refer are Richard Baer and Ed Lasky, both of the American Thinker. Uh, And with us via telephone uh, during the program were Larry Sabato and Jonathan Last and Fred Barnes. And with that, a cordial good night to all.